I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Dom Morley is a Grammy Award-winning engineer, producer, and mixer who has worked with artists such as Amy Winehouse, Adele, Sting, and Nick Cave. He also is in demand as an educator and lecturer. I'm always interested in what motivated people to get into recording and how they broke into the business. I started by asking Dom about his early influences. The first big moment for me was when I was about 13, and I was into sort of chart music, which at the time was um, Michael Jackson's Bad Album, Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, that kind of era. Um, I was into chart music, and then uh, I got an older brother, and he had borrowed a Pink Floyd cassette from a friend at school. Um, and he went out, so I snuck into his room and, and, uh, and nicked it and had a listen, and it was Wish You Were Here. And in that hour, everything changed in that I was aware of what music was and what it could be and, and how it could make you feel and where it could take you, you know, all those things that I'd never felt before. So I, I, I dived into Pink Floyd from that point, and that's where I really got into music. The next step for me was there's an album by the Pixies called Surfer Rosa, and that album uh, made me form a band because the way it's sort of produced, it's very kind of raw Steve Albini thing where it's it sounds like four people in a room and you hit record because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so to a sort of, to a, you know, I guess I was 14 at that point, 14, 15 maybe, to me that made me think, well, that just, that's four people in a room playing. Like I could do that. Um, so formed a band with some friends and obviously we would, we were awful, but uh, we started out with a cassette player in the middle of the room trying to record what we did, and then I bought a four-track, and then I bought an eight-track, and and I, I much preferred doing that and sort of playing with those things than I did the kind of the being in a band doing gigs, that sort of stuff didn't really interest me, but, um, but I did love recording us, and I bought um, an Atari ST to, to sync up MIDI with, with my reel-to-reel eight-track, and this was, I guess, the mid-90s, early 90s, mid-90s. So that was kind of the, the bedroom technology of the day, really. So that I loved. And then I went to the library, and because this is obviously pre-internet, I went to the library and got a book out about jobs in, in music and audio and saw this kind of this job of sound engineer working in studios. So I was like, well, that's exactly the bit I love. That's the thing I want to do. That was the procession of, of events that went from, from not being involved, being a piano player at the age of 12 to uh, to wanting to get a job in a studio. Obviously, music was important to you even before you had this uh, sort of transition to the engineering part of it. You know, was music an important part of your family life? Or was this something you pursued on your own, you and your brother? Or how did that happen? Well, it was, yeah. I mean, both my parents are musical. My dad plays guitar, and I've got early memories of him and his mate playing secondhand news from uh, the Rumours album, because Rumours was big, and you know, that came out when I was about two, so that was big when I was little. So, And they listened to that load, so there's that. And my mum plays piano, and it was actually her playing Scott Joplin, uh, which she used to play a lot, which made me want to learn how to play the piano. When I was about five, I started getting very sort of basic piano lessons, because uh, in my mind I wanted to play, you know, Maple Leaf Rag and The Entertainer and stuff like that. That's what sort of turned me on to music, so... Um, so yeah, I guess yeah from then and then as a kid I I I played piano and then got into bass when I was a teenager 
And I guess in terms of my brother, it was quite fortunate because we were only a year apart, so we were very much into the same stuff. Uh, I think we actually we were in a band, that, well, in a theoretical band for a bit, you know, one of those kind of ideas where let's form a band, yeah, we'll do this. And we talked about album covers more than we did any music, one of those sort of things. <laughs> that was early teens. Yeah, so I guess musical family, reasonably musical family. My parents were in like an a cappella group and stuff as well, so they were both kind of very much, you know, their hobbies were music-based. You know, I know a lot of your history from doing some research and what I've just known about you over the years. I want you to take us take us through how you sort of broke into the studio world. I mean, the real studio world, not recording yourself, but going to a real studio. Yeah, so so when I got that book to say uh, that sound engineer was, was a job, and, and I realized that was the thing for me, there's another book in the library which had a list of studios where basically you can get the phone number and address of every studio in the country. And the only person with any kind of knowledge of that world that we knew was a family is a friend of my dad's who wrote music for tv and i went to his house and had a little chat and he sort of talked me through some things and he said you should get a job in studio try and find one with a neve or an ssl desk they got one of those they'll be decent you know they'll be okay so i made a list of every studio in london that had a neve or an ssl which was you know a few dozen back in those days and i spent three days just walking around uh, all the studios knocking on doors saying, um, I work for nothing, I make good tea. <laughs> Three days of that. They all said no. So that was a little bit, it was fine. I'm, I'm very good at, at not backing down if I have an idea. So then I went to Birmingham as the next biggest city in, in the UK and uh, or in England anyway. And I did the same there. And then there was a studio. The first one I came to said, uh, yeah, right, we'll see you on Monday. So I was, yeah, amazed, very quickly got myself somewhere to live uh, over the weekend because uh, I lived down south. And um, and then I started on Monday just doing work experience there. So that was there was a bit of bit of luck on that one because they did a lot of that. They had guys from the local college would come in and do a bit of work experience as part of the course, I think. And those guys would come in at 10 when the studio opened and then they'd leave at four because that's when they were used to leaving at college. Whereas I was just dead excited to be in a studio so I would leave when they turned the alarm on you know at night when I had to go um so so I sort of obviously stood out a little bit I guess from from what they were used to so a job came up at a nearby studio that actually employed assistant engineers which was owned by UB40 it was called DEP and I was recommended because the guy that I'd been sort of helping out there, a guy called Simon Hanhart, he knew a guy called Mike Exeter, who was the chief engineer over at DEP. So they were mates and chatting. Mike said, we're looking for an assistant. And Simon said, oh, you want to get Dom in? Uh, so, yeah, I went over there, got a job there. I was there for, it was about two and a half years, worked with some really good people there. And it was a small studio. It was two rooms, very well run. All the people that I work with there are still, like, 20-odd years later, are still in the industry doing stuff. So that's, you know, an unusual thing to happen after this amount of time. Normally people have sort of shuffled off, but everyone's still doing it. So that's um, a sign of the good team that we had. And then after two and a half years, I moved down to London, and I uh, got a job uh, eventually after a bit of freelance assisting around different places. I got a job at a studio called Metropolis, which is the largest independent in Europe or certainly was at the time and it really had it was the one I really wanted I was very lucky I really wanted to work there and the reason why I'd work with a lot of freelancers and they would 
uh, back when I was at Depp in Birmingham, and they would be sort of tied to a desk, if you know what I mean. Whatever desk was their one that they used, be it Neve, SSL, whatever, presented with another desk, they their hands were tied behind the back. You know, they they couldn't work, and I didn't want to be like that with anything really with any sort of gear i didn't want to rely on anything because then you kind of got to own it or <laughs> or or you're stuck so metropolis at the time had an ssl e an ssl g an ssl j a neve vr and a focus right desk it had five main rooms so i figured if i if i worked there and trained there i'd just know how to use desks um, and and you could put any desk in front of me, really, and I'd be you know unfazed because I'd just be used to desks rather than being used to a particular desk. So, so I think that kind of that kind of happened. Um, and you know, I was there for a few years. I think I was there for seven years in all as an assistant and then in-house engineer. And then I got, ended up getting quite a bit of sort of engineering work. I was working with Mark Ronson quite a lot. I was kind of his English engineer. Did a lot of stuff with him on his second solo album which is version the one with all the covers including the hit valerie with uh, with amy um as well as on amy winehouse's back to black album we did some stuff on adele's first album and a whole load of other things and so then i went freelance at that point and then fortunately that first within a year i'd won a grammy from the amy album so that sort of made things a little easier just in terms of getting getting known and 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 it sort of puts you in a bracket i think for people that they figure well, he can't be deaf then, you know, if he's got a Grammy, <laughs> he must be okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then I've been freelance for, I guess, about 10, 12 years now, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And now I've got a little studio. I, I, I rented a studio, well, shared with a friend, had a studio in Metropolis. We rented one of their rooms that they rent out to other producers. Had that for about five years, and that worked out really well. Then we sort of both moved out of London. So so he's down on the south coast and I'm up here in Oxfordshire, which is sort of Tolkien uh, country, if you if you know England at all. So uh, I have a little studio up here now of my own, which I've had for, I think it's four or five years now, which is, yeah, it's coming together really well. It's really, um, yeah, it's really nice. It's just me and some horses and chickens, basically. It's uh, middle of the countryside. <laughs> yeah, and so that's me up to date. There you go. How old were you when you when you made this move when you 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 went knocking on doors? I was twenty. Yeah, it was the summer of me being twenty. So I got a job mm -hmm. just before I was twenty-one. Did you have any relevant formal education before you did that? Nothing. No. At that period in the UK, uh, so this would have been like ninety-six. Yeah, something like that. At that period in the UK, there were about three or four courses that you could do um, to give yourself an education in sound engineering. And so they were very hard to get onto. And there were a lot of studios. It's kind of like the opposite to what it is now. There was hardly any education opportunities and a lot of studios. So it was almost easier to get a job in a studio making tea than it was to get on a course. So I, 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 when I was doing the, the sort of the work experience, which I wasn't being paid for, before I got the job at Depp, I said to myself, right, I'll do this sort of six to nine months, see if I can get to know people, get a foot in the door somewhere. If I haven't got a job after that point, I'll I'll find a way of uh, I'll try and get on a course. Because um, I say I wasn't being paid, there was a there was a sort of what they called job seekers allowance at the time, where you could 
you could go to the government and say i'm i'm you know it was unemployment benefit i'm looking for a job i'm doing this this and this and they'd give you a, a a small amount of money every week which was for me just enough to live on i had peanut butter sandwiches for breakfast and lunch and noodles for dinner for months <laughs> on end <laughs> well actually it was about it was about two two three months while i was sort of getting by but yeah it all worked out it's all good well i know now that education educating other people is really important to you so that, that's sort of an interesting path that that you didn't really have that except for the mentoring that you got at, at the places where you worked you know were the were the studios where you worked were the 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 engineers and producers you work with, were they good at mentoring people coming up? Or were you pretty much on your own to, to, to get what you could out of it? Um, it's a bit of a mixture, really. You'd, you'd, every session you'd try and kind of try and get an eye on what they were doing and learn something and pick up something. So it was, you know, there was a career benefit to you being there, even if you never got any more work out of it, you know. Um, but definitely there were a few who, you know, I would establish a good relationship with and then be able to ask questions of and, and learn stuff from them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I, I, I've got into education because, uh, partly because I like doing different stuff. I like having a kind of varied schedule rather than just sort of sat in this one space every day for the rest of my life. But, but it's because I see that kind of disappearing, that way of learning. I learned off other people who had been doing it for 20 years longer than I had and I had the benefit of their experience applied to what I knew. And because there are so few studios now, there's there's so little of that going around compared to what there used to be. As we've said, there's more formal education, which is great. But I think where what I benefited from was, was partly the mentorship thing from engineers I had a good relationship with and also the varied nature of working with different people. So that's why I've got in as just another voice, really, in, in people's education experience that, that they can learn from, from what I've learned from. So I do guest lectures um, around universities, and I do, like, I've talked at the NAM show for the past couple of years and was booked in for the next winter NAM, but I don't think that's going to be happening now. <laughs> um, that's highly I don't unlikely. Think so, no. um, and I, I tutor the master's course at uh, Conservatoire in Leeds over here, so uh, in, in music production. So, And I have a, um, a website called The Mix Consultancy, which is where um, basically anybody can upload a, a track they're working on, and I will take a listen and... and um, and give them as much advice as I possibly can on on how to how to improve their mixes and to improve their technique and and everything else with the benefit of me actually having heard what they're doing as opposed to just I sort of say it's it's a bit like doing a mixing course that you might buy but instead it's uh, actually tailored very specifically to you which I think is kind of unique perhaps but yeah all of those things are all part of what I try and do to pass on the knowledge really yeah well, I do want to talk about the mixed consultancy because I think that's just like a, an unbelievable opportunity for people to have somebody that really knows what they're doing listen to their work specifically yeah. and give them feedback on it. I think that that's great. Yeah. So, you know, you get all kinds of things coming in from people, I'm sure, at all different experience levels. And is there anything that just stands out in your mind that mistakes people are making that are pretty universal you know, you find all the time? Uh, there's the, I guess the most regular would be kind of confusion with what to do with bottom end um, and how important your, your EQ is above everything else 
in sorting that out. There's a lot of kind of talk of sidechain compression of kick to bass and all that sort of stuff. And I have to try and explain this to my students that if you use the kick to compress your bass, all you're doing is turning your bass down a little bit every time the kick drum goes. Explain that to your bass player and try not to get a bass wrapped around your head because <laughs> that's not mixing it. That's just turning one thing down every time the other thing happens. Then we lose part of the bass line. So it's a case of, of really, you know, recognizing where the present frequencies of the kick and the bass are in your tune, letting one take one frequency, letting the other take the other, and, and really making the space in the rest of it. And also filtering off almost everything else, you know, if it doesn't have to be in the bottom end, if you can filter that everything else off, then you're just leaving all the space for the kick and the bass to live and have punch because you start off a mix with, you know, if you do get your kick and bass sitting together really well and you've got a nice punchy bottom end going on and then you just leave the bottom end in, that's little tiny little bit of noise on everything else that's low rumble that you can barely hear, but when you've got 25 tracks doing it, you've just clouded up the whole of the bottom end again. So um, filtering is a huge thing. And... and that's, I guess that's probably the biggest thing that I find myself saying quite a lot with people is just to really take care with that because that's, uh, you know, it's so important to, to the delivery of the track and, and pushing the rhythm of it along and everything. So, yeah, that's probably the big one. And then I guess another one would be making space for the vocals in a similar way, like finding the, vo the, the present frequency of the vocal and making sure nothing else is in that so that when you pop your vocal in, it's got space. You know, it's already got somewhere to sit and you're not having to fight. Yeah, I guess those are the two big ones, probably. How much of that do you think occurs in the studio as far as mic placement and mic choice and, you know, direction of the artist, whether it's a vocalist or a bass player, or drummer, or whatever? I mean, how much of that should be done in the studio to avoid, you know, spending a lot of time trying to fix it later? Or, or do you find that it doesn't really matter? You can fix it later. Yeah, I mean, these days you've got so many tools, you know, you can put endless surgical EQs on if you want and stuff like that. But it's always better to have the, you know, the initial signal being right. And then you're having a less processed mix at the end of it, which also sounds better, sounds more organic, sounds nicer, sounds clearer. You know, if there's any way you can, um, I, I know people's recording process these days is 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 not optimum. You know, people aren't often booking nice studios with a big selection of mics and a few different bass amps they can pick from and a couple of different snares and things like that and being able to to build their track that way so I realize that you don't always have that choice and that is a luxury but yeah I think if people can certainly bear that in mind from the beginning of the song you know from the beginning of the production then it certainly makes life easier along the way you know when you're picking your bass sound if you're doing it from a soft synth or something like that then then think about how it's sitting with your kick drum or vice versa, depending on what you're doing first, you know, think about how it's sitting with the other one from, from the word go. And then you've built yourself a clearer track and you've given yourself an easier time when it comes to mix. Yeah. Just in, in general, that, that prompts a question to me about, uh, you know, we're talking about mixing here, but you, I, I presume you still do a lot of recording, just tracking this stuff, right? Or is that not much of your job anymore? Uh, it still is a bit. I do, I do produce stuff. Um, I'm just mixing an EP now that I've, I've produced. So recorded a band in a studio, you know, a drum drummer in a nice drum room, and then, and then most of the overdubs actually happen 
at mine um, because I can and you know it's a more relaxed environment because it's it's cheaper and you know we can just hang out for a while so yeah I still do a bit of uh, a bit of that it's it's less than it was you know when I was employed by a studio to do all the sessions that came in but um, but I still do it and I still really like it you know it's it's fun doing the recording sessions and having a whole band in and, and having everybody playing at once and getting it all you know getting it all through the desk sounding good you know I still really like that bit how important do you think it is from the beginning, from that first process of, you know, even before you're in the studio, of having a vision for the final product? Is is that totally necessary, or do you think you can sort of let the thing grow organically and then figure out what to do with it later? What's your position on that? I, I take both positions simultaneously. <laughs> I think it's good to have... Uh, <laughs> good to have a plot and good to have a direction otherwise you're floundering you know because you can do anything and if you don't have signposts as to where you're aiming then you can find yourself trying everything under the sun and 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 kind of going a little bit mad really so i do like to have a direction and you know if i when i'm first working with an artist i'll ask for a playlist of tracks that are sonically similar to what we're aiming for. And sometimes that's the first time they've really had to decide what they're going to be aiming for in the studio if it's a new artist. But, you know, it's a very important process to go through so that we know where we're going to be. But equally, I like to be open as we move along and let things let things grow and take their own direction. So if something seems like it's going one way and it sounds cool, then, then I'm more than happy to run with it. It's sort of... I did once hear the... Um, the actor and everything else, Stephen Fry, um, talk about how he disliked goals because he found people that were too goal-orientated turned down all sorts of amazing opportunities that appeared on the periphery because they were so determined to achieve the one thing they set out to achieve. And I think that's also an interesting angle on you know a lot of things in life. If you are too blinkered, then a lot of wonderful opportunities and strange things that can come along and, and enhance your life or your recording, which if you're if you're too uh, blinkered and focused on one thing, can uh, you can pass by? You know, I know that you do act as producer for some projects you work on, engineers for other mixer or other, and you know the dynamic in the in the control room. If you're the engineer working with a producer, you know one thing that I always struggled with was how much of you know, my own opinion, do I inject into that project? You know, and I wonder if you could give some insight from your experience. Yeah. So if you're not the producer, and and therefore that's not your job, you know, to have that overall say, um, I would, uh, as an engineer, I would restrict my opinion injecting to purely sonic suggestions framed within what they've told me they're aiming for. If I had something that I felt was outside of that brief, but worth saying and important to say, I'd make sure if I said it, that I was speaking to the producer and no one else could hear. Because I think that's the important thing is that you're not treading on anyone's toes and, and pushing yourself into a position that you haven't been employed to be in. So that decision to take an artistic, you know, angle on something is the producers and the bands. And as the engineer, I think you are you're more employed by the producer than the band in a way, if you know what I mean. Like you're there to to make his vision come 
come to life. So I would have a quiet word with the producer when no one would hear and make my suggestion then. Yeah, that's how I kind of, that's how I would kind of balance that. Well, I know when was working with producers that, that I've worked with over the years, there's some that, you know, they know exactly what they want and they just want you to facilitate that and, and, and pr pretty much stay out of the picture. But I've also had producers where I was sitting there thinking, man, this is going the wrong way. Should I say something? Should I not? And then, and like you say, you do it when nobody else is around because this is not, you don't want to put the artist in a position of discomfort realizing that there's some, I wouldn't call it conflict exactly, but just sort of difference of opinion going on. Yeah. So you, you do it privately. Uh, but I've had producers, you know, I say, do you want to hear what I have to say about this? And they'll say, absolutely, I'm depending on you to, to, you know, to help me with this yeah. project. Yeah. So I think it really depends on who you're working with. Yeah. And, and I think you introduce it gradually with a new, you know, when you're working with a new person, you test the water a little bit and see, see where their kind of tolerance is. And then sometimes if you work with someone a lot, there might be a point whereby certain happened to me once where you're doing a bit of assisting for somebody, doing a bit of engineering with them, then uh, then ended up co-producing things with them because your you know your input ended up being so valued that they actually wanted you to be one part of it and to be able to to carry on with the job when they couldn't do it. They knew that you could do the production job and be in the same production headspace as them. You know, at the same at the same time. So yeah, definitely, I think that is part of your job. I think you can do more damage than 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 good by by injecting it at the wrong time and place, your opinion, because you can destroy the vibe of the session and your relationship with the artist and the producer. So so um, although that's obviously you know that's part of what you should be doing, you just got to be careful how you introduce it and see where their the producer's appetite for other opinions while the artist's around or you know other opinions are generally because like you say you might say can I make a suggestion. And then if they say you're supposed to be making suggestions, you're like, great, okay, I know that they're very open. But if there's a bit of a KG, okay, let's see what you got, then you're okay. This guy doesn't want too many opinions, especially not out loud. <laughs> you know, we've talked a little bit about your role, both as an engineer and a producer. Do you get involved in sort of the arrangement part of it as well? Because I know you're, you're a, an accomplished musician and... I, I presume you play on a lot of the, the projects you're working on. I don't actually play that much these days. Um, occasionally I will do, uh, if needs be, kind of synthy stuff, basically. But but no, I'm now more of an owner of instruments than a player of instruments. But, um, <laughs> but arrangements I do get involved with if I feel the need. Um, I have previously, you know, worked out at the very beginning of a project with an artist like you know you've got a whole load of songs to look at and it's like well that chorus is working and that's the only bit in that song is but it sounds like it would work with the verse from this song and that's the only bit that's working in that song so let's put those two together and and or this bit sounds like a middle eight to me not a verse so let's put that in that song that's missing a middle eight and kind of those sort of general sort of overview arrangements as well as obviously if i'm building a track with an artist it will be the the more kind of detailed arrangements of where instruments are going to be coming in and out and, you know, you know, what needs to happen here and do we need a, you know, a guitar part here or does it need to be something more legato and stringy or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, I kind of, I get involved 
as much as is necessary really i have no problem with with going in with both feet if it needs it uh, or just you know lighter touches of muting something in a mix that didn't need to be there you know something like that well that leads me into a question about you know dealing with the artist as a producer you know i think for a lot of people starting out in the business they may either be intimidated by the artist or they may be feel that you know the artist is there for their service of uh, fulfilling their vision of the song the producer's vision of the yeah, song yeah. you know every situation is different obviously you know i guess i'm getting into the the concept of the psychology of the session yeah. you know making sure that things are are going smoothly and that if there's differences of, of opinion artistic differences you know how how do you, how you resolve that and how do you see your role in that situation uh i i kind of come come at it from the the fifth band member sort of perspective um and a, a sort of a a midwife of the album because what I don't like, you know, I obviously work with a lot of producers as, you know, as an assistant, as an engineer. Um, and one of them, interestingly, was Phil Spector, for whom it was very much his vision of what it was going to be. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I, would I would presume so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was the man and, and the artist was the turn. So <laughs> what I never liked was when a, a record sounded like the producer rather than the band, because I always thought that was kind of, there were more bands than producers and you know we don't want we want things to sound as diverse as possible so i'd want the band to sound like themselves the best version of themselves so that's what i try and do and and i think in terms of the psychology of the session and making sure i, I just try and make sure everybody feels like they can say whatever they think whatever they feel without it being a problem or it be embarrassing or, or anything like that so so there's two things to that sort of a two-pronged approach and one is to try everything if somebody makes a suggestion we just give it a go and part and parcel of that is being very happy to be wrong and it's what i i do i do say very early on with you know everything that i do really is i'm i'm virtually impossible to offend so you know you can you can just say you hate everything that i all of my ideas they're all terrible great i'll come up with some more then that's fine you know i've obviously got a different direction i've gone the wrong way let's go a different way and so i will you know early on in the session i'll be quite quite happy if this happens and even perhaps try and engineer a situation where i throw in an idea it doesn't work and i quickly shout myself down um just so that everybody's fully aware that we try these things and if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. You know, you just call it, yeah, it doesn't work. Sounds rubbish. Forget it. Let's try something else. Um, and I think that sort of establishes the room and, and the session is somewhere where we're open to as much creativity as possible. And, and also we're open to owning up to our mistakes. You know, we say, if I can say this is rubbish and it was my idea, then we all know that that's fine. And we can carry on with that in mind. Yeah, I've always felt that if you're not trying something that doesn't work, you're not really making any progress. Yeah, you're you know, not you, pushing. You got... Yeah, you're not you're not pushing yourself far enough if you aren't making mistakes. It's like there's a great quote from uh, Burry where he said uh, artistically where you should be is you know if you wade out into a lake and you just get to that point where you're just very just on your tiptoes and if you tilt your head you can just about breathe. That, that little fragile point on the edge is where you should be placing yourself artistically, which I think is a great thing to bear in mind of that, just pushing yourself. And, you, you know, if you're there, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. 
and that's you know and that's part of learning do you have problems i mean everybody's different obviously but i mean when you're dealing with an artist getting them to try stuff that pushes them because i know for me i hate to do things that i can't do well and i tend to avoid doing things i can't do well but I mean, this podcast is an example of pushing myself into something that's a field I don't really feel comfortable in, although I think I'm learning how to do it. Yeah. But, you know, how do you make an artist feel comfortable to to put themselves out there if, if that's not their inclination? Yeah, that's that is a tricky one. And and it's, you know, it's a it's a build up process of, of this starting out by making everyone feel good about making mistakes and that being part of what we do and and clearly not being embarrassed yourself about a mistake because you know laying it out that this is all part of the process and we all push ourselves and try hard and then you know decide whether it's good or not and then move on so yeah I do see one of my big things that I enjoy I was chatting to an artist I was working with recently that I've worked with a lot so I can sort of say this with him is I really enjoy that bit when you're working with like a singer and and I push singers pretty hard, emotionally, not necessarily technically, but I just, you know, I want to know what emotion I'm supposed to be feeling when I hear the song. So we talk about that before we start. You know, I'll read the lyrics, but just want to make sure I've got, got the right emotion that's being delivered. And if I don't feel it, then we have to go again, and we keep going until I can feel what I'm supposed to feel. Uh, as I sometimes tell them, what the ideal situation is if somebody didn't speak speak English, didn't understand English, but they heard the song and then knew what you were singing about by the way you sang it. So I really kind of get singers to dig deep on that. And it's not just singers, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, if someone's playing guitar or whatever they're playing and then they need to get whatever emotion is necessary out. But it's obviously because it's a physical instrument, it's more heightened with singers. And then I try and very quickly get a comp together because every time when it's the first time I've worked with someone, I know they're feeling like I was, I went a bit far. And I pushed them a bit too much and that was unnecessary. And then very quickly get a comp together and play that back and show them how good they are. And and a lot of times it's better than they've heard themselves perform before, which is always a hugely rewarding moment for me, knowing that I've got their best performance. So I think that's sort of the part of the trick is is getting them comfortable with the the, the trying new things and pushing. And then on the other side is when you've done that is being... Be, being able to very quickly show them results of them having pushed themselves so far that they've done something great. So that's kind of, I think, how I balance it out. And and then, you know, people tend to come back because they like, they may not like the hard work, but they like the results that they get when I, when I make them work. Yeah. How do you know when you've pushed them to the point of diminishing returns and it's time to quit? Uh, the diminishing returns is the right phrase because it's when it starts getting worse. Um, if the performance is getting better then we keep going until it starts getting worse. And then it's like, okay, we've peaked, you know. And and if I feel like we've got what I need anyway, there'll, there'll often be like, you know, say take seven. I've, you know, I'm feeling it now. So that's great. Like, we've got this. And then we'll do, because that was great, we'll do take eight. And then they may surprise me with an even better one than take seven. So that's great. We're doing another one then because that was great. And then we do another one. It's like, mm, that wasn't so good. Okay, we've peaked. I know we've got it. And we actually got a better one than I thought we would get. And now we're going downhill. So let's take a break. So that's kind of how I work that. Yeah. I mean, do you get to the point sometimes where you just say, this isn't happening today and let's just 
come back another day yeah 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 yeah. there's no point sort of flogging a dead horse with that if, if somebody's you know physically if their throat isn't working or something like that or or they're just tired or they're not we're not really getting the right sort of delivery on it then then yeah yeah let's there's no point sticking around and that's the advantage of having your own studio because it doesn't cost a fortune to be in here you know so if you're in a thousand pound a day room you've just got to do it anyway but um but yeah the advantage of being in here is that you know we can do that and we can just call it a day and come back is there anything more you wanted to say about that mixing concept of making room for the for each part or do you think we covered that okay uh I, yeah i think so i think that the important thing that everyone has to remember is just it's sort of like thinking in slots is what's going to what's going to be where and um and where's its where's its principal frequency and and where's that going to sit and every time you introduce a new instrument you hear or you're trying to hear in the mix what's now gone wrong with the mix with the addition of that instrument because that will be the area that it's sitting where something else should be frequency wise and then you've got to make a decision as to who gets that frequency because um, it's got to be cleared out of somebody and other for the mix to, in order for the mix to still be clear and punchy so yeah that you know that's a i think eq is is something that's it's treated as with equal importance in the world of vloggers and and people that write blogs and things like that vloggers and bloggers um equal importance as saturation and sidechain compression and things like that and obviously it really really isn't but I can understand if you are a blogger or a vlogger, you need a new topic to talk about every time. You can't just keep keep telling people what I've just told them about EQ because no one's going to listen to your, your you know your blog anymore. So, so I think people, if they're learning via the internet, are only getting a small picture of what what's important when you're when you're mixing something. And I think that's where the mix consultancy comes in is because that's what I talk them through when I'm talking about their mix and where it needs to improve. A lot of the time, it's just EQ problems. Occasionally, there'll be some compression things that, that could be done better, but it's very rare. In fact, I don't think I've ever told anyone that they really need to add some saturation or some sidechain compression to their mix to make it better. You know, it's nearly always an EQ problem or, you know, several EQ problems or balance or something like that that, that needs changing. Those are, the, those are the real things that you need to learn how to do when you're mixing. Which, you know, I appreciate it's very difficult to do without experience. And you just got to do it a lot. Um, and if you can, get some opinions of what you've done from somebody who's been doing it a lot longer than you have. Yeah. You know, I think in any field, there comes a point where you got to stop reading and start doing and, and, and learning. And I think a lot of people, you know, they, 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 it's hard for them to break away and just start doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you find that the people send you mixes with overuse of compression or inappropriate compression, or is that a problem? Um, that that actually is, it's normally not as much of a problem as the EQ thing. Normally things are muddy and messy and, and balance. Compression, I think, uh, sometimes it's like something's been slammed. And I like slamming things with compressors, so I normally don't have too much of a problem with that unless, you know, the life's been drained out of it. Or there's, you know, a bit of mixed compression. Like if somebody's working on a dance tune or something, then there's that little bit of extra, extra mixed compression that can actually move a room when it's being played in a club that you don't notice so much when you're listening on speakers or headphones, you know. So there's little bits like that. 
and and control and control of control of uh, the dynamic of something rather than kind of a squishing of uh, of a part. So, but sorry, I haven't really explained myself very well there. So instead of controlling the dynamic of an instrument across a song, you're controlling the dynamic of an instrument per hit, if you know what I mean. So you're using your compressor to shape the sound rather than instead of using automation on the fader. You know, so that's kind of what I do try and get across. You know, which I do actually, having just said things about bloggers, I do have a blog on my website on themixconsultancy.com and I do go on about that a little bit so people can read up on that if they want to go there and see um, me go into depth about it. But yeah, those are the few little things on compression, but that's less, I think people have got more of a handle on that um, or at least they've got more of an idea when they've gone badly wrong than they do when when the EQ's wrong, I think. That's how it seems with the the things I get through anyway. Do you find people u- utilize automation and and clip gain effectively in in their mixes, or do you think that that's an area that they could improve as well? Yeah, definitely. It's. I think the thing is, it's not enough. People aren't using them enough. I think it's easy and lazy and wrong to use a compressor to do your volume rides for you um, because you, what you don't want is on the loud bit for thing to just be more compressed and on the quiet bit to be not compressed at all you know you should get those get those bits sorted out with your clip gain or with an automation fader before so your compressor is really just looking after the punch of the sound so a story I, I quite often tell at universities is Andy Wallace I saw a little bit of his I don't know it was a mix with the masters or one of those kind of little video clips of him and he's an incredible mixer of, of guitar music. And he was explaining how he generally takes him about 40 minutes to get the EQ compression and balance of a mix right. So that's the bit that takes everybody else a day. But Andy Wallace has been doing it forever. And he's got a load of assistants that do certain things. So, so it takes him about 40 minutes to get the EQ compression and balance right and reverbs and everything else is all good but a mix will take him 10 to 12 hours so the other sort of 9 to 11 hours he's just doing automation um, he's he's making the mix move the way it needs to move and every single element of it is doing that and that takes a lot of time to get that level of detail going so that's the thing that surprises a lot of students I think is they don't realise that, that, that that bit that took Andy Wallace 40 minutes and that probably takes you a few hours that's not mixing that's preparing to mix you've set up for it everything's sounding good well done but now you need to make the song move and that's really where you're turning from something that sounds all right into something that sounds great and moves people so the other story on that is when I'm back when I was an assistant if there was one of the kind of the world's biggest mix engineer one of those kind of gang would come in and occasionally would get someone like that come in and then there was probably like six assistants that were working in the studio at the time, which was great. You know, it's great to be in a community of people that are all on a level with you like that. Um, and so whoever was assisting that guy would all be like haranguing him, saying, what's he doing? You know, what, what tricks has he got? Why is he so great? You know, and there would always be this little mime of very slight moving of all your fingers, which was a sort of mime of just sitting on the faders, making them all move very slightly all at once. And and if you went in and checked, all our desks had, you know, fader automation, so the faders would be physically moving. I'd quite often go in and check when the famous mix engineer had gone home and would sneak up and listen to the new whatever whoever record he was working on. And you would see all the faders would be moving all the time. There was nothing that was staying still. 
because he was constantly rebalancing for every beat of the song. So that that sort of going in depth on automation is something that is really, really important and a huge part of, of getting a great mix. Do you find that you actually want to move the faders or are you happy with uh, clip gain changes and drawing in automation on the screen? Is, is there a difference in the dynamic when you work different ways? You know what? It's interesting. I've just, so I, I had a desk to work on until I moved into this studio five years ago and then it took the big decision to not get a desk. And now I'm thinking, oh, it might be nice to have faders again. So I'm sort of, I got my iPad, which has the kind of, you know, the Pro Tools hook up and you're sort of drawing on that a little bit, using the faders on that, which I've got into recently and quite like. So I'm now potentially going back to faders. I think, I don't know, I think it has a slightly different feel to it. I think I can, I can perhaps do things a bit quicker on faders because I'm feeling it a bit more rather than the sort of the drawing in thing. I don't know. I think, you know, it's horses for courses, really. It's whatever whatever suits your style. I don't think one, one is better than the other. Just whatever gets you to the end result quicker is, is a good thing. Well, one thing about having a console in front of you, you can grab a bunch of faders at once. Yeah. You know, which is pretty hard to do on a, Very with hard. a mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, I think, the, the biggest thing that you notice when you start, if you've only had consoles and then you go to in the box, is that initial setup is a lot quicker with a console. You know, getting the mix started out where you're grabbing faders, pushing things quickly, everything's right there on the desk in front of you. That initial setup is a lot quicker. And then after that, I think it sort of evens itself out a little bit. I still like the the, the sound of an analog thing, analog consoles, analog outboard. Um, I still think anything that's run through a reasonable chunk of outboard just does sound a bit more 3D and a bit more natural and real than something that hasn't. Um, I know that's potentially a controversial statement, probably not with you, but you know, with some people that's a controversial <laughs> statement. But no, I really do think that 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 being in the real world and, and having audio pass through analog devices gives you something that you don't get putting on plugins. I've been talking with engineer, producer, and mixer Dom Morley. Your comments suggestions, and questions are always welcome. You can email me at dwfern at dwfern.com or use the link at dougfern.com. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.